0: Why does someone leave the religion they were born into? What causes people to convert to a new belief system? What goes on inside a high-demand religion? Listen to the experiences of ordinary people as they answer those questions and more. Hello and welcome to Crestless Podcast. Today we are going to be interviewing Gemma. Gemma, Hi. Hi. So, Gemma, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the group you belong to, maybe a general idea of your age and location, that sort of thing? Okay. So, I
1: come... Um, what is well known as the greater New York area. I was born into a secular Jewish family, really completely and entirely secular. And Mm -hmm. my grandparents are Holocaust survivors, which what eventually led me to kind of want to take on a more traditional lifestyle and honor their heritage.
0: Right. I know we talked about this before the podcast, but just for the audience, I suppose it is worth mentioning at this point that I myself spent several years in an Orthodox Jewish community. So this is a topic of special interest to me. Anyway, please continue. So that's what
1: happened when I was 17. I met someone who was an Orthodox Jew. And we became very good friends. She was only a years older than I was. She told me there's a lot of things that Jews are supposed to do. I didn't know this. I was not raised ever going to synagogue or anything. Like I knew my parents were Jewish. I knew my grandparents were survivors and that was it. I had a completely mm-hmm. like I considered to be a normal life. So then when I met this Orthodox girl, she told me like, other there's things that Jews are supposed to do. And she told me a little bit like the laws of kosher, what you can't eat and what you can't eat and how girls are supposed to dress and behave and how you're supposed to be like, your whole life girl. and well, voice too, actually your whole life is supposed to lead up to one day you're going to get married and you're going to have kids and you're going to lead this religious traditional life
0: let me just back up for a second so your parents were completely secular you said correct and probably your grand okay so your grandparents too
1: my grandparents were raised in religious families that was in the in the old country and then when they moved to the u.s it was completely Difference. First of all, the the only places where there were Orthodox Jews right after the war, few little synagogues in Brooklyn, and that was it. And they, like most immigrants, they steered into Ellis Island. And from there, either went to Jersey or Long Island or whatever. And there weren't Jewish communities there. There were barely any Jews as it was. So mm-hmm. they go of their old practices and were just very happy to be American. They were, that's right. what they were proud to be.
0: Right, right. And I'm sure they were grateful to have uh, escaped what they did.
1: Yeah, yeah I mean. absolutely. I mean, they were very small children when they came here. And so th- th- their parents was the same story. Their parents were like, in their 20s or 30s. My grandparents were all between the ages of five and 10 when they got here, all of them at different times, some of them at the beginning of the war, some at the end, but mm-hmm. they were just very happy to come here and blend in, learn English and not speak whatever language of the country they came from. Some spoke Hungarian, some spoke Yiddish. They were just happy to be American. Malay, not go to synagogue, not religious practice. They were just happy to have survived and to be in a new place.
0: Right. Well, understandable, obviously. Was this both sets of your grandparents? Both sides. All four of my grandparents are survivors. Oh, okay. My goodness. Do you remember hearing a lot about that as you grew up? So on my father's side, they were very open about it and on my
1: mother's side they were not so for example like my father he would get together all of his friends were also survivors themselves or children of survivors and I remember when I was little I would go to his house and every Friday usually you know on Friday night he'd prepare for Shabbat what they would do was that they would all get together and they would play poker and they would tell their stories from the Holocaust all night long and I remember a lot of times working on Friday night so I would go stay with him and babysat <laughs> there <laughs> and, he- and so
0: So his Shabbat (laughs) practice was poker. Yes, that's, yes, absolutely. Great. Like every,
1: funny, you know, my parents would ship me off over there because they were like, she oh, you knows she's going to spend Shabbat with her grandparents, That's traditional Jewish thing to do, let her go. But I would get over there and I would be in this fog of cigar smoke with these Holocaust survivors <laughs> talking about their Holocaust stories and playing poker.
0: Oh, that's, that's hilarious. I mean, <laughs> the cigar poker part, obviously. So you grew up with a strong knowledge that this was your background and this was what your grandparents had survived. That was probably your main source of Jewish identity, I'm guessing.
1: Right. So I didn't really understand ever until my teenage years that the, the, the Jewish was like a, a thing to be and to do. To me it was just like, you know, they were persecuted back then because they didn't like Jews and they were Jewish. I had no idea what being Jewish actually meant. I didn't think that we were any different from anyone else. But right. I just knew that this was, they were persecuted. It was bad. Now today, mm-hmm. apparently not considered as bad. And, and to me also being Jewish was like these stories of small town in rural Hungary or Lithuania, the locals one day breaking into your home and stealing your things and tossing you into the street. Like that's that's what being Jewish meant. But this to me this was this was a bad thing during the nineteen forties. It's not happening anymore today, so In a way, to me, there were no more Jews because being Jewish meant being in Eastern Europe and experiencing all these bad things.
0: Right, and it sounds like your version of being Jewish was like someone else in America saying, "My grandmother's Irish," or in that sense, like heritage is Irish. You were never told that your parents never sat you down and said, "There are some people who are Jewish that do this and some that do that, but this is what we do." It was just kind of assumed this is the thing. This this is how life is.
1: Being Jewish was not something that we ever talked about, particularly not with my parents. My grandparents, for them, it wasn't that something that they talked about. It was just something that they lived in it. For example, they remember that people would get together on Friday night to have dinner. So they would do their own version of it and how they wanted to do it. And you would go to the synagogue for the holidays and then have, say, you know, for the Jewish New Year, you would have a big dinner after going to synagogue. Well, they wouldn't go to the synagogue. They would just have the big dinner with their friends and the family. They kept the little things that they did that they remembered their parents doing them in their own way. so that's with my grandparents being Jewish was doing things. And with right. my parents was an absolute non factor
0: in their lives at all. Okay, I see. So there was cultural carryover with your grandparents, but with your parents, basically not at all. So completely secular. Yeah. That makes sense. So that's how you grew up. And then when you were a teenager, you made a friend who was Orthodox. And she's like, well, you're Jewish. There are things that Jews are supposed to do. If you're Jewish, you're supposed to be doing these things. And you're like, oh, wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, exactly. First of all, I didn't even know that Jews getting together was a
1: thing. There was such a thing as like having Jewish friends and doing Jewish things with them. I I didn't even know that this was a thing. I said, I didn't really understand what being Jewish was. Like you said, it's the perfect example. People today, they're like, my great grandparents were Irish Catholic, but you don't see them
0: getting together with fellow people whose great grandparents are Irish Catholic. (laughs) That's kind of how I thought it. Right, right. Exactly. It's just a footnote about your heritage, not something that necessarily influences your life today or any of your practices. It's just kind of like, this is where my people come from. Well, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. My people come from here. Right. how I saw it. So where did you meet this friend? So I did have some Jewish
1: friends growing up, but again, who were completely secular. And then I was in my last year of high school. And there was a friend of mine who we were the same age. She was a a year in advance. For some reason, I think she skipped a year. because She was like so smart or whatever. And she was in already in college, there are Jewish outreach groups in colleges. Mm -hmm. And so this girl, she was doing Jewish outreach at a college and she was getting my friend to come to some events and uh, volunteer doing fun things like doing Shabbat dinners and going to uh, Jersey for the weekend and like by the lake. And so my friend was like, there's this like girl who's organized all these activities for college students and you should come, you should meet her. She's so much fun. I knew that there were these kind of Jewish things and like doing activities. I tell my friends, you know, sometimes going on Shabbatons, these these events for Shabbat that they organize. for like young people and Mm -hmm. I never had any interest in that and but then eventually like through my friend I met this girl and I got to have a one-on-one talk with her and that is when she said with like really rich heritage that you have and my grandparents were also survivors and you know we did this and we did that we kind of bonded over that sure that was kind of how it began she was in
0: college and were you in college at this point No. So I was in my last year of high school. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So the things she was organizing, were those connected to the college? That's the thing. There
1: are Jewish outreach organizations at every college. So they go over to the college and then they meet the local Jewish students and then they organize these activities. They're outside of school, but the college is kind of how they get to them,
0: how they meet them. So which Jewish outreach organization was this under it sounds like you were basically a Chabad girl's dream you are exactly who they are looking for (laughs) yes yes you know (laughs) Jewish on both sides completely secular you don't know anything you're a completely blank slate exactly (laughs) exactly that's that's what it was and that's what I realized now Right. And I don't mean that in a nefarious way, but like a Christian missionary would love to have somebody who hasn't already heard about this religion and already formed an opinion about it. That's the best idea. And right. it's the same for a Jewish outreach, which I guess I should mention that Jewish outreach organizations are basically looking for people whose heritage is Jewish, but they are not non practicing so they don't follow the the rules of of being a religious jew they don't know much about it but they're looking for people who who have jewish families to bring them into the religious fold. And that was exactly what they found in you. From their point of view, they're doing good work. They're doing what they're supposed to be doing. I don't mean it to be a nefarious type of thing, but yeah, it sounds like you're perfect in the profile they would like if they had to think up somebody that would be their dream candidate. <laughs> so what happened? Did you start going on these these events
1: with her? So actually, no, I, I met with her a couple of times and it was like very friendly. You know, I, I told her that I was kind of reticent on going to like these big events with people. And so she was like, fine, no problem. So I ran into her a few more times, hanging out with my friends and whatnot. And we would just have these really amazing conversations like every time, you know, about Judaism. She would teach me a lot of things that, of course, I didn't know. And right. we really bonded over having a very similar background, yeah, because she also was not born into a religious family. She became religious just a few years before. And so we both had the same secular Jewish background of having Holocaust survivor grandparents.
0: And oh, that's interesting. Okay. Mm-hmm. So she didn't grow up religious, who had a, a ton in common.
1: Yeah. Okay. Did, and that's how that started. And it's very funny to get into like the little details in here, but she was actually working for a Chabad center that she felt was too nice and too welcoming. because She liked me because I was like 100% Jewish, but she didn't like how Chabad would sometimes do outreach to people who they would then find out that they were not Jewish according to Jewish law. For example, like a kid would show up with a Jewish name, Jewish last name, but it turns out that their mother was not Jewish and therefore they were not Jewish and she didn't like that. She, right. she was like kind of gatekeeping Judaism in a way. And so she was like, Would you really like to learn more about Jewish practice? And I said, Okay, fine. She recommended that I meet a rabbi who was not Chabad, who was the other big Jewish outreach sect called Yeshivish. There's this right. organization that's called Aish, which is the Yeshivish <laughs> outreach.
0: So that's Ish Haturah? Come originally from Israel, and I think that's
1: the name of the Israeli base, Ash Hatura. Oh,
0: okay. Let me just cycle back to what you said ab- about her and the, the people with the Jewish background. For If you could explain the difference in Jewish law, how someone is Jewish, that would probably be helpful. Because according to Orthodox Jews, not everybody with a Jewish parent is actually Jewish. Yeah, yeah. So according to
1: Orthodox Jewish law, someone is only Jewish if they have a Jewish mother their mother was born to a jewish mother that's what it means so somebody could have three jewish grandparents but if the mother's mother is not Jewish, they are considered 100% not Jewish,
0: right? They would still probably be friendly to them and want to convert them, but they would not consider them Jewish, even if one of both grandparents were heavily involved and the parent was going to a reform synagogue, like every week, and none of that Jewish cultural stuff, or even religious stuff would matter. It's it's pretty much a black or white situation.
1: Exactly. And so that's the thing. they were usually very friendly to these people who have a Jewish dad but they're They're not. And yes, somebody shows any kind of interest in Judaism, they will point them towards conversion, which they never do. You know, this is something worth mentioning. Orthodox Judaism doesn't actively seek to convert people at all. But these people who have a Jewish dad and they show up to these events and they show interest in Judaism, they do nudge them Mm -hmm. in that direction.
0: Right. Because I think they may not consider them Jewish by religious law, but I think they do sort of otherwise. They definitely have a soft spot for those sorts of people. Yeah, I mean the anyway. way
1: that they see it is that they almost they see the kid kind of as a victim of the situation. They're like their dad did a bad thing and didn't give them a Jewish mom, you <laughs> know. They can't have the privilege of being Jewish. We have to give that to them. That's really how <laughs> they
0: see it, you know. try explaining that to your mother (laughs) mom dad did a bad thing (laughs) when he married you and you had me and i'm really just a victim of your illicit relationship and he should have married this nice jewish girl but instead you came along yeah yeah exactly right okay So did you at that point start becoming more observant or was this more of you were just sort of listening to her stories, thinking about it? How did it progress from there?
1: the way it really started progressing was when I met with this yeshivish rabbi he told me I mean some of the same things these are things that Jews are supposed to do but he was very knowledgeable he asked me very specifically about where my family was from and he was very into Jewish geography and so he knew all of the big families before the war and what country who were the like big rabbis and whatnot and then he through asking me the names of my grandparents and their family he found out that I was like related like this big rabbi who was killed during the holocaust and after that, he, took his, he was so nice to me. And it's not that he wasn't nice before, but he started being like really, really lovely to me. He invited me to his house, and his whole family immediately adopted me because it turns out that I was related to this big rabbi, which now, in retrospect, seems absolutely insane. But at the time, it felt so amazing. It was by default I'm important. Or something mean, <laughs> when you're 17 right. you very wor- world view and these these little things also when you're 17 you're in a constant identity crisis and so these big things kind of coming into place sure. it, it really felt my whole world was changing and so after going to shabbat dinner at his house a few times and seeing how happy and picture perfect the family was and how lovely everyone was to me And I went to synagogue with his wife a few times. She was like great, great granddaughter of this big Lithuanian rabbi and everybody. It was, wow, that's amazing. And and the other person would say, but you didn't grow up really, but now you're taking it on. That's amazing. And I wasn't even decided on taking it on. But at that point, I was like, looks like
0: I have to or something. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry, I'm laughing. But it's the way you're describing it is amazing. It is. It is kind of funny. All of a sudden you find out your Jewish royalty and everybody's so excited and they want you to carry on the tradition and you're like, oh, wow. I mean, <laughs> it's also sudden. Exactly.
1: I just came to the
0: synagogue. I don't even know exactly, what I'm doing, but I have to uphold this heritage of great Jewish learning. Absolutely. That's 100% what it was. So After
1: that, I was convinced. I was asking her, like, what can I take on? What can I do? And obviously, Kosher Shabbat and modesty are the, the first things that you, you have to do. Everything else, all of the other little Jewish laws, you can kind of learn as you go along.
0: Right, and excuse me for cutting in there. I just thought it was worth mentioning that Shabbat is the Jewish Sabbath and it runs from Friday night to Saturday night.
1: So, and this is also another thing in Orthodox Judaism as long as you don't know something, you won't get bad consequences in the afterlife if you didn't do something because you didn't know you had to do it or you did do something that you couldn't do. As long as you don't know about it, it's fine. So, they actually don't teach you too much at the beginning because if they teach you too much and then you don't do it, it's bad. But as long as you don't know it, It's not bad. The very first things that I knew about were kosher and modesty and Shabbat. And even then, they didn't teach me anything. Shabbat has thousands of things that you can't do, right? I didn't learn all of them at
0: once. So maybe you could just give a quick rundown of what's involved in keeping kosher and modesty, and then we can cover the Shabbat stuff. It's a lot, but maybe just the major point. Someone who doesn't know can maybe get a sense of the scope of the practice. The
1: yeah. So kosher, the basics would be you can't mix dairy products with meat products. And if you do eat meat products, they have to be butchered, by a kosher butcher. And mm-hmm. of course, there's certain animals you can't eat. And you have to check your fruits and vegetables for bugs because you can't eat bugs. And right. everything that you eat has to have a kosher stamp on it.
0: Right. Okay. So any processed food would have to have a kosher symbol on it. Yeah. And you can't just buy meat from the grocery store unless it... From a kosher brand and mark kosher it came from the specific butcher that handles animals in the proper way you can't just go to burger king and have a hamburger because that meat that they use isn't kosher and they're also mixing dairy products and meat products so if you're really keeping kosher you're not getting takeout food this isn't the basic first step but at the end of the day you end up eating a very strict specialized diet yeah yeah
1: exactly So this is also another thing that they loved about me. I was vegan at the time, always have and always will be. And so kosher was pretty much
0: a non-factor to me. So they,
1: you know, the orthodox Jews around me were like very happy about
0: this. They wouldn't have to brainwash me to kosher basically. So that is actually pretty convenient. No meat, no dairy, no problem. Yeah. Exactly. As far as the modesty goes. So, I mean, already before I ever went to that rabbi's house for Shabbat, I had already guessed that there was a
1: dress code because whenever I would see the other Chabad girls, I always saw that they were in skirts. So then I looked it up and yes, there is a dress. There are the modesty laws, which for women, it means always wearing skirts that go past your knee, shirts that cover your collarbone and your elbows. So that's that. And so when I knew that I was going to to this rabbi's house, I figured I have to dress up. Actually, nobody told me anything and I'm sure that if for the first time I had shown up not dressed this way it would have been fine because I didn't know but so I did dress that way it actually for me personally was not that hard of a transition I was already a little hippie-ish back then and I always hated wearing pants I felt like I had quite a feminist face when I was 14 and I had this whole manifesto written out in my head about how pants are oppressive to women for like a million reasons (laughs) by the time the whole Judaism thing came about it actually so that's the other thing I felt like it fit right in with my values, which it didn't, was completely contrary to my values. But I felt at the time, everything was fitting in. They told me about kosher and I was like, well, I'm already vegan. There's no problem.
0: Oh, I can't right. wear pants
1: now? Well, perfect. I hate pants. They're horrible. So I like everything
0: was fitting in. That's you know? so interesting. So, I-, so yeah, I just find it fascinating. You were a feminist and you felt like skirts were, I mean, pants were oppressive to women. That's completely the opposite of what I would have expected. So in my mind, it was because pants represented women
1: being forced into into doing these things that men are doing. I read a book called This Come Manifesto by Valerie Solanas when I was 14. Very bad idea. Mm-hmm. Don't expose young teenage girls to this. The whole premise of her book is this. Women are being oppressed by being forced to be like the orthodox approach is, yes, women are oppressed by the secular world to be like men. So force them to be in the kitchen and to be mothers. That's the Orthodox Jewish way. But what I grew up with, and what I had the worldview of as a teenager was that the women were oppressed by the fault, and then the world was forcing them to be like men. And so I really felt like becoming Orthodox in the way that I was doing it was contributing to my own liberation, according to the feminist literature that I had been exposed to until then.
0: That is really fascinating. So sounds like it wasn't that much of a transition. That's that's really interesting. And as far as Shabbat went, you were you were okay with it.
1: So Shabbat, I never felt like particularly guilty about it, but I don't think that I, except for a handful of times, I don't think I ever kept it completely. It's just too ridiculously hard. Seriously, thousands of things that you can't do and that you have to think about and this and that. And also I was still living with my parents who I'm sure that this will be a topic on its own who were not happy about this.
0: Parents being completely secular and you living with them, keeping Shabbat would have been quite difficult. Yeah, so on Shabbat, you can't use any electricity there's a law in the Torah
1: that says that on Shabbat you can't kindle a fire and they blew that one out of proportion and pretty much every modern thing that we have now is considered a fire so you can't turn on the lights can't cook you can't do many many things and sharing a house with people who don't care about this and are actually you have a lot of contempt for this is very hard whole lighting not lighting the lights things you're allowed to use the lights, so you're allowed to have light to have lit them before shabbat so what i would do is that i would leave the light right outside my bedroom open and the bathroom light open and then Mm -hmm. of course one of my parents would come in and use them or go to bed and they would shut them all off and then i trying to keep shabbat would not be able to turn them back on so this was a whole event Saturday, this would be a thing. So this is a funny thing. You can't cook, but there's also a Jewish law that commands you to eat warm food on Shabbat, but you can't cook. So the way that you do this is that you set up either a slow cooker or you set up your oven on like a very low heat and you put food in it and you leave it on for the next day. Which again, when you're sharing a house with people, very problematic. The cholent, it's called the food that you're supposed to eat on Saturday during the day. And you're supposed to have set it up the night before so that warm then when you use it, but you didn't cook it on Shabbat. Shabbat and right. thing reek. There's one thing that you can say about cholent is that it stinks up the whole house for like 15
0: hours. So, again, <laughs> the people, not convenient in any way. It does have an aroma. You said you didn't keep Shabbat completely, but was it an issue to eat the food that was being served? Did you have to make your own food? I mean, I know there's something about eating food prepared on Shabbat.
1: Well, so that's the thing. I would make my cholent every Friday after just some beans and vegetable stock in a tiny slow cooker. And, you know, except for the smell, it wasn't that much of a problem. But of course, that was, that was the only food that I could eat because I had made it and I knew that it was kosher and I knew that it was ready and all right. fine for Shabbat. So then my mother would be angry that I didn't eat breakfast with them and eat what she was making. And I'm very happy that I throughout this whole thing, I always showed restraint and compassion towards my parents because it is well known that there's a lot of kids who become religious when they're still living with their parents that make their parents' lives a living hell because their parents are also Jewish. but. But they're not keeping Jewish law, so at least I'm glad that I showed restraint in that regard. I never told them anything, or I never said you're not supposed to do this on Shabbat, or you're not supposed to be eating this. I never did.
0: Right. And right. this is also another advantage of
1: having been vegan for quite a few years. I was always used to making my own food. Food was always thing in my house, a thing that we would always fight about. So anyway, being Jewish didn't add on more the flame in that regard like it was already a problem
0: that's great totally forgot that
1: you were vegan jewish love, it is actually mandatory to eat meat when possible on shabbat and on holidays because meat is considered this great big thing like it was always scarce you know all the way back in the desert when the torah was first written to eastern europe meat was always rare so it was like it was like honoring shabbat and the holiday if you would have it on shabbat and on
0: holidays so I'm sure that was very confusing for your parents all of a sudden you're trying to live this traditional Jewish life and this is not what they grew up with and this is not what they raised you to do and all of a sudden you're taking on these different practices and you won't eat their food it sounds like you were very nice to them which is great
1: yeah in retrospect I am kind of surprised at how nice I was to them but I'm glad I
0: was right and I was really so,
1: like, so convinced that what I was doing was right and that every Jew had to do what I was right and you know it, it didn't didn't take much time for me to become involved in outreach and suddenly like I was telling people what
0: to do which is insane when you think about it a 17 year old shouldn't be telling anyone what to do but very quickly like I was so convinced sure you learned the truth and you wanted to share it with others because now that you know what's right you want to reach people who are like you who don't know so (laughs) how long did it take you to become observant so you would consider orthodox
1: from meeting with that rabbi it was very quick I wanted to take everything on and I thought that I had to do absolutely everything. So even the things that I couldn't do perfectly, Shabbat, you know, for example, but everything, I wanted to do absolutely everything from the moment that I went to synagogue with, with his family and adopted by the whole community. It was really in a few months that I was already doing everything, literally as much as I could in six months. And I was like, honestly, and I was one of the things that I made it a point to do was whenever I was in conversation with religious Jewish people, I would make mental notes of the words they were using and the lingo they were using and the way right. they would speak able to speak like them. And so that when somebody would meet me, they wouldn't know that I was not born religious. And honestly, like six months, I achieved it. Like it was ridiculous. I look like a perfect (laughs) little religious girl. I talk like a perfect religious girl. And that was what I wanted.
0: Right. No, there is a specific jargon that's not just true for Jewish religious people. It's also true for people of any religion that they have terms and phrases that they drop Mm -hmm. in certain circumstances. For Jewish people, it's like, you'll promise to do something, but you'll say, I don't swear to it. And the English. And then there's, if you say that you want something, you'll say, with the help of God after it, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Exactly. No, and even like the the little words, they, add in little Hebrew or Yiddish
1: words into daily conversation up to a point where they don't really ever use the English for that and so right. like, that was something that I had to learn you know for example like modesty in Hebrew but Hebrew with the accent of people who are from Eastern Europe it's pronounced snias and you're never going to hear them say modesty you're only going to hear them say snias right and The word can be conjugated in a million different ways. And all of those conjugations, that's what's used in the actual English word.
0: Right. So that was something that I had to learn. Yeah, no, and it sounds like you kind of threw yourself into the deep end. You're being around observant people and kind of absorbing their vocabulary and their concepts like a sponge, which makes sense. So six months, you're still 17. You're eight, maybe you're 18, and you're Orthodox. Are you going to college at this point? When I graduated high school, first thing I did, yes, I went to college, and I was still religious, and I was trying
1: to balance the whole thing out. I know that there's many people, you know, Orthodox people that. to college and are very successful but I found that because I was learning how to be orthodox and I was also going to college classes I found it very hard so I decided to drop out after my second semester And Mm -hmm. I knew that that would be the breaking point with my parents. I tell them I'm dropping out of college because I want to be religious. That would have seriously, I I can't even imagine it. But that's when I decided to move out. And I moved in with these religious girls who were also not studying. They were working inside the community. They were working, waiting to get married. And I Uh, figured that would be easier than
0: to go to school and get a degree and be be a functional member of our society. (laughs) (laughs) The way you said that, I will say, yeah, on the one hand, but on the other hand, from your point of view, you were diving into a culture that you wanted to learn more about that had to do with where your family came from and you learned you're connected to this great rabbi in Lithuania. Jewish practice does require a lot of learning. There are a lot of different texts and the Jewish law is intricate, so I can definitely understand that this would take up a lot of your time so from your point of view you needed to take the time to make this happen to accomplish it and you wanted to be around people like yourself who not people who thought this was stupid and you should go to college and get skills and get a professional job and just ignore all of this nonsense from where you were at the time i'm sure it made a a lot of sense
1: yeah, yeah, and um, it was very funny because I spent my whole teenage years being very contrarian and thinking like either you know, either with feminism or with veganism. I was like so convinced that I was unique and I was going to save the world and whatever. And then with Orthodox Judaism, this kind of self-righteous teenager feeling that I had, it exploded and it became even bigger because suddenly I was rejecting and secular culture and the culture that I was raised with and the whole world. So I actually liked this. Like I liked being different and I even like kept getting fueled. Anytime that somebody said that whatever anti-Semitic thing had happened, I was of course they hate us because we're so. Cool, And we go against all of their values, and their values are bad. And so I was hiding myself up the whole time.
0: Right. So, would you say that there was kind of like an us versus them mentality that you were taking on and that the people around you shared?
1: Absolutely. I mean, this is all Orthodox Jews have this and they talk this way. It very much is us versus them. And I was very happy to have taken this on because I always felt personally that it was me versus the world. So, suddenly it wasn't me versus. Was them, it was us versus them. Like all of us, we had all of our practice, and then there was the rest of the world who was out to get us. So right. I was like private.
0: Right. So when you said you moved in with these religious girls, how many people were you living with?
1: It was an apartment that was right above synagogue. The rabbi owned this was like a little apartment building, it was six apartments that were above a synagogue, and he had been renting them out for I don't know, 40 years. So they were like completely entirely rent controlled. Plus, because we were religious, he was given a really good deal on it because in New York it's impossible if you're a young person with virtually no skills and no job get a decent apartment so i moved in with this one girl that i knew from the outreach thing and we were seriously playing paying, paying baba's, and we were almost not working spending full-time going to jewish events or doing jewish outreach and she moved out after she got married which was about three or four months and then another religious girl moved right in somebody that i knew from the community that didn't know very well and so that was that those were like my two religious roommates that i had in a short period of time we were like right. all three of us were kind of doing the same thing we weren't really working we were just learning as much because that's the thing they were also like me they had become religious both of them right. had become religious I think a year or two before I did so they knew more I felt like I could learn more from them and we were all in the in the same vibe doing the same thing right
0: I'm just curious. You said you're kind of waiting to get married. Was that something that you knew you were doing? That they knew that they were doing? Like that was your goal, and it was expressed out loud. Okay, we're here. We're learning. We're waiting to get married. We're gonna find somebody, and and that was the goal. Yeah, like yeah, absolutely. We
1: definitely talked about it. It was definitely our goal. We were like all of us going left and right. So every married person that we know, if you know, a guy that you think would be good for me, please let me know. You know, even if we weren't going to like official matchmakers. There are matchmakers in the Orthodox Jewish community, but usually they only go with people who are religious from birth because they know their parents. And so because we couldn't go to matchmakers, we had to like rely on our friends and our friends, friends, friends to hopefully find someone.
0: Yeah, that was like
1: all we talked about.
0: Wow. How did that come about? It's one of those things that I'm always curious at some point, did someone say something to you? This is the most important thing you could do is to get married and have children, have a Jewish household. Or was it more just that you absorbed it by osmosis? It seems like from the outside now that the Jewish Orthodox community puts a lot of pressure on people to get married?
1: The way that it is spoken about, it literally, your life doesn't start until you get married. All the young people, that's what they're waiting for. You know, even, and this is a thing, young boys that were born into a religious community and that right after yeshiva you know the orthodox jewish school right after it if they don't want to pursue higher studies most of them don't if they want to go straight into working you know, for someone in the community usually they won't let them have good jobs until they get married because they don't want to encourage them to like be self-sufficient until they mm. get married So this was very much the same thing for us girls were not really encouraged to do any if you did something they wouldn't tell you not to do it but you weren't encouraged pursue hobbies pursue higher education travel uh, even like have that many friends the only thing that you were supposed to be doing from the second that you finished high school would do things that enabled you to get married for religious girls usually this involves going to what they call it seminary usually they do it in Israel or, or if you're in New York and they literally teach you it's, it's like the first class on how to be a wife woman and mother in the religious world they're teaching you some of the laws that apply only to women not All of them, but most of them. And you know, it's crazy, like they even have cooking classes in some seminary. Like literally teach you how to be a wife and mother. And this is what girls do in the year after high school, literally just waiting to get married. And so that was the whole world. Every girl that I met who was not married was doing something waiting to be married. Even if she was pursuing a college education that she would never use, because in her community it was girls didn't really work. Still, she was just doing that
0: to keep busy until she got married. Right. But that was everyone. So two things. The first one is it doesn't sound like you did the year in Israel after high school. I mean I could imagine with the situation with your parents that would have been difficult to to achieve to you know get them to be okay with you going to a foreign country to learn for a year (laughs) than an orthodox institution (laughs) and and financially to pull that off on your own also would have been difficult
1: yeah yeah. again honestly that was kind of funny and I see it now that it was kind of a red flag that maybe the whole thing wasn't for me and I subconsciously knew it I never wanted to go to Israel I had absolutely no interest in ever going to Israel even at the peak of me being religious and this was something that I could never say out loud the Holy Land literally like every even the anti-Zionist Jews at least once in their lifetime they go and they pray at the Wailing Wall and they visit like the, the graves of the great rabbis this is like Israel is like a mandatory thing for Orthodox Jews where I had absolutely no interest in going to a war tour in a country now I never managed to get rid of that image and put right. on instead this image of the perfect Holy Land
0: right you still viewed it as sort of CNN Missiles for Lying, that sort of place. <laughs> exactly. Plus, if I went, I would have gone
1: only the religious parts, which in Israel, the religious neighborhoods are the poorest neighborhoods with the highest crime rates and everything is like falling apart somebody who was living in geula which is one of the most orthodox neighborhoods in jerusalem and she was talking about how she was surprised as a joke she was surprised that rats were still considered unkosher since they were everywhere and i just remember oh thinking my- and, and i'm supposed to want to go there
0: oh my gosh wow <laughs> that is yeah. horrifying i mean <laughs> right <laughs> I could definitely see how after hearing something like that, you would be like, ooh, I don't know. No, thank you. <laughs> right. So you you leave college and you're staying with um another religious girl who you guys are, you know, your your main goal is to get married to a religious boy. Um, and you're mm-hmm. trying to meet through other people that you're meeting and you're doing outreach work. Was it for H that you were doing the outreach?
1: I was like, back and forthing between Chabad and Aish. so I was officially registered as a volunteer same organization where I met the the Chabad girl like the very first Orthodox person that I met so I was mostly doing their events but the whole time I was thinking but Chabad is a crock and Chabad is not legit but they're nice I like what they're doing so I'm going to keep doing it but yes there's also like this big rivalry between Chabad and the rest of the Orthodox Jewish world they don't like them really reason yeah yeah it it is very well known like the other Hasid Jews don't like Chabad, the Yeshivish Jews don't like Chabad, the Sephardic Jews don't like Chabad. It's a very (laughs) well-known thing. And so the whole time I was going to the Chabad activities because I thought they were so much fun and I loved meeting people, but I also didn't want to marry a Chabad boy. And eventually my old Yeshivish rabbi told me, if you keep going to these Chabad activities, people think you're bad and they're going to suggest that you meet Chabad people. And I was like, oh, well, I do not want that.
0: (laughs) Chabad is bad. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's a little interesting that you internalized this idea. You came from a completely secular background. You become religious through this yeshivish group, and you internalize this idea that Chabad is bad to the point where you're like, oh, no, no, I can't marry somebody Chabad. That would be... No, <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. Exactly. Difference between
1: Chabad and Yeshivish. Well, first of all, Chabad, they are Hasidic Jews. The image that you see of, of Hasidic Jews everywhere in the world, that Chabad are technically supposed to be like them. But the main difference between Chabad and the normal Hasidic Jews is that their head rabbi has died and they haven't replaced him. So they technically have no leader and their leader passed away told them that they had to go to every corner of the world and find every Jew and show them the truth, show them about Judaism, teach them about it, and hopefully eventually bring them to the path of orthodoxy. The yeshivish right. approach, first of all, they were not really doing outreach until very re- recently, like, I don't know, the last eight to 30 years. And so ye- the yeshivish Jews, now we call them yeshivish, but originally they were the Litvish community. They, they were originally from Lithuania, but not Lithuania, the tiny little country that you have today, the you know? great Duchy of Lithuania, which used to encompass most of Eastern Europe. Back in the 1800s. And the way that they did things is that everything was focused on. Learning Torah for men. For women, they had to obviously have a million children, take care of them, and be the breadwinners. And this was even 200 years ago because men were supposed to be learning Torah all day long, day and night. They were supposed to be learning Torah. Whereas Hasidic Jews, men were supposed to provide for their families, and they weren't so much focused on learning. They were more focused on praying, and they make their praying very lively. You know, Hasidic Jews, they have a mutil- they have many beautiful songs that are prayers. And they were very into dancing and rejoicing. And Hasidic Jews were very much about being happy. So that's Kabad or Hasidic in that way. Ed, whereas Yeshivish, they're the old Lithuanian approach of only wanting to learn and leading these very austere lives. The Lithuanian Jews are the kind of people that when you tell them that you're struggling or that you're unhappy, they'll just go, that's life. They don't have this like emphasis on serving God in a happy way. Right. That would be the big difference between okay, them. That's and, interesting.
0: Yeah. So you didn't want to marry a Chabad person. Did you eventually meet someone?
1: That's the thing. Eventually, I was at a Chabad outreach event with the very first religious friend that I made. She introduced me to someone that she thought would be perfect for me. I was eventually engaged to him. So he was about 10 years older than I was, still mm-hmm. studying in college, has changed his career path a million and a half times. And his parents were Chabad, but he was now studying at a yeshivish school. It's actually it's at a yeshiva, but four boys were no longer in yeshiva. And he really wanted to take on the kind of the yeshivish way of life. And he was also Sephardic and this is going to sound absolutely ridiculous, but I wanted to marry somebody Sephardic because they're allowed to eat more things on Passover than Ashkenaz
0: Jews. Passover, what the difference in Sephardic and Ashkenazi practice, that would probably be good.
1: And so as of Passover, the difference between Ashkenazim and Sephardim is that Ashkenazim who are from Eastern Europe, the rabbis made many, many rules of things that they could not eat during Passover, you know? Most grains and pulses, they can't eat. Whereas Bardem, people who are from the Iberian Peninsula, their rabbi said that they could eat all of those things. So can eat rice and really all of the grains and pulses that are not straight up bread.
0: Right. And this is a distinction that's still held today. So yeah, exactly. people whose family descend from the you know, Middle East regions, mm-hmm. they can right. eat those things. And if, I think it's correct me if I'm wrong, it's if a woman marries into a man's community, not the other way around. So if you marry a Sephardi man, you would take on his practice. But if a Sephardi man were to marry you, he would keep his practice.
1: Yeah, the way that they do it, because back in the old world, it was absolutely that a woman would marry into a man's family, and she had to take on everything that his family did. There's actually, it's it's written, I, I don't remember which book I read it. But back in the day, they would tell a girl as soon as she was married to spend as much time as possible with her mother-in-law learning how to be like her because it was not Jewish law that she had to exactly be like her, her husband's family. Today, girls are allowed some of their own traditions if they want to. Like if I as an Ashkenaz married a Sephardic and I still wanted to keep my Ashkenazim customs, I would be allowed to. I would just not be allowed to force my husband to do it.
0: And your kids, I guess, would be raised in the husband's tradition. Yeah yeah exactly so for the kids
1: there would be no no choice you know they would have to be raised into the husband traditions
0: uh you were engaged but you did not get married correct yes yes so we weren't officially
1: engaged i mean the ashkenazim there's like a three step process to getting engaged so the only have one step which is to like formalize it in front of your family friends and rabbis and witnesses match was a little bit of a longer process so we were never officially engaged in either way we never had a party with friends and family saying okay we're getting engaged we're get- getting married this real but we had agreed that we were going to get married and we were planning to do that okay before I was like okay I can't do this so in the Orthodox world really like if you even if you don't have a matchmaker somebody has to act as the matchmaker like somebody has to go okay she's interested he's interested when do you want to see each other and they really like have to supervise your first few Date. Otherwise, it's just not, you know, quote unquote, kosher. And she didn't want to be our matchmaker because she said that we had too big of an age difference and she didn't want to be responsible for anything. And so then we asked other friends who knew both of us, and no one, I mean, we asked like five people, no one wanted to be our matchmaker because they didn't see it working out and they didn't want to be responsible for it. Wow. And so this this already should have been a huge
0: red flag. Oh my goodness. (laughs) But it wasn't. Oh Wow. So he was 10 years older than you from a slightly different Jewish tradition. Were those their complaints, the age difference? Or were there other things?
1: So the way that they saw it is he is 28 years old, was raised Orthodox and is not married. Therefore, there must be something wrong with him. Because most girls are married between 18 and 22. And most boys are married between 20 and 25. They were like, he's pushing 30 and he's not married. There has got to be something wrong there.
0: Oh my goodness. So he's like an old mate. Absolutely. He was good they call them older singles in the
1: Orthodox community and they throw that word around all the time. And in the Hasidic communities, the second that anyone or girl gets you know makes it past 25 without getting married, they're automatically an older single.
0: Oh my goodness. Yeah. That is young to get married. But I, I knew that Orthodox Jewish people get married young, but to call someone an older single when they're still in their twenties, that's that's interesting. Wow, that's quite a stigma, isn't it? It is. It really is. So you, you met him and the two of you thought that it would be a good idea, but your friends and uh, acquaintances didn't seem to agree. So yeah. what did you guys yeah. do? So that's the thing. We, we couldn't like officially date because we needed somebody to arrange the dates
1: and nobody would do it. So we would deliberately run into each other. Basically, there would be like events or Shabbat at Rabbi's houses or whatever where we knew that the other would be there. So that's how we would see each other. And eventually we were just like, okay whatever let's date see each other you know outside of the setting so we had two official dates organized by ourselves and on the first date that we had we agreed that we wanted to get married based on having seen each other a total of eight times and yeah so then I wouldn't really call this a date but after we decided to get married even without telling anyone his sister that I I didn't really know okay so it was him but he asked his sister to do it his sister invited me over to have Shabbat dinner at their house to meet all of his siblings and his parents but again we were not officially engaged it was not an official thing and his parents were very confused by this
0: so you guys were rebelling and trying to work it out on your own nobody seemed to be cooperating you're showing up for shabbat dinner and his family is like you know his sister might have known but nobody really knows exactly what's going on Right, exactly. So all of his siblings knew and they were so lovely. His parents
1: thought that his sister invited me. So they thought that I was a friend of his sister. But then when I was like <laughs> asking her, like, your name is this, right? They were like, okay, no, that doesn't check out. They they can't be friends. And
0: <laughs> they're like, who is they, this person? <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly. <laughs> Why is she but here? They, exactly. It was, it was a little awkward at first, but they were so lovely to me his mother she caught on very quickly onto what was happening and she was absolutely adorable to me and I remember after that I learned a few things about him that night that kind of were red flags for me and I was like that put the first doubt in my mind but his family was so lovely that I remember after that Shabbat dinner talking to one of my friends and I was can you marry a guy just for his family she was like no But I remember thinking like, I loved his family so, so much. And once her mother Mm -hmm. realized that I was unofficially dating her son, she was so grateful because he was an older single. This was a problem. And so she finally found a girl and she was just the sweetest
0: to me. Oh, that must have been so nice for her. She was wanting to get him married off and here you are. And she probably liked you. She's, oh, she's normal and yeah exactly if it's something you can't share and it's not identifying him or anything what did you learn that you thought was alarming well first of all like
1: before that I didn't really know that ever since he graduated yeshiva high school he had not been able to either hold down a job or study anything permanently and the Sephardic way is that it's men who are supposed to provide for the family and women are supposed to stay at home with the children so I was like he has no skills he has no job prospects and he has changed his major a a million times so how on earth is he like going to provide for the family so that was like my first doubt and then I was if he can't stick to either a school program or a job, how do I know that this is a person who is going to be able to keep a stable family life?
0: That was what I was thinking. From the framework that you're thinking he's farty, he's going to be the one working, but he doesn't seem like he's capable of keeping a job. Of course, that would be alarming yeah yeah so that was the first thing that i noticed there by talking with his parents and getting to know about
1: him more well then i spoke with him a few days after this this was before we had our last and final date he told me pretty much that so there's a jewish law called shomer negia which basically means that until you're married boys can't touch girls and girls can't touch boys and until until they get married and once you get married you can only touch your spouse and I'm not even shaking hands not anything and then right. he, he told me that he had been with other girls in the past and I the religious in me was shocked by this. But then I found myself rationalizing it. I was this is completely normal. He's a guy in his twenties, he should be allowed to do that. And so then I found myself like questioning my religious thought for the first time. I was like, this is normal. People in their twenties do it. That's very normal and very healthy. So that, it gave me like a doubt about him. And it also made me doubt like my religious belief.
0: You were trying to justify mm-hmm. the fact that he had been with other girls with your secular brain mm-hmm. because that would be of course normal for somebody who is in their 20s in the secular world but in the religious world that's absolutely not something that people do at least not openly yeah exactly in a society it's where so you're not supposed to be touching the hand of the opposite yeah. the opposite sex so it's interesting that your religious person trying to justify it with your secular reasoning to give him the benefit of the doubt for this religious match that you're trying to to achieve, even though he grew up in the religious community,
1: right, exactly. And so that's why eventually they couldn't rationalize it. I couldn't make sense of it, because we were going to engage in religious Jewish life. And so therefore, that did not work. It just didn't work. He grew up religious, and therefore he did this. And it's a very bad thing to have done in the orthodox community, but that was like, okay, this is not going to work out with him. And so that's when we have our final date, if we can call it that, you know, this is not going to work out for me. That was our 10th time I ever saw him and seeing someone 10 times, we had the time to get engaged, meet his whole family and get unengaged.
0: (laughs) It's quite a roller coaster for 10 times seeing someone. Yeah. (laughs) I know that there are people who even take less time. It's amazing when you think about it over at what a a few months. So you decide this is not the guy for me. What happens next? Then I kind of
1: Realized that maybe just the whole thing is not for me. I realized I'm always justifying everything I do with either this is religion, this is the way it has to be done, this is that. And I was like, you know, what if I was just real? What if I didn't have this? What if my life hadn't taken this trajectory in the past like year and a half, two years? This is ridiculous. Like this is too many rules. This is too many things. And it's unnatural. That's what being engaged to him and hearing him say that he had been with other girls and then realizing that this is a natural thing. This is a normal thing normal thing my way of thinking or or the religious way of thinking what seemed unnatural to me forbidding this very normal thing so right and i realized pretty much everything that i was doing suddenly it stopped making sense and it didn't feel like it was right
0: so you realized that this standard of purity that the religious world demanded was something that you didn't necessarily agree with and it sounds like that realization that you didn't agree with it acted as a catalyst to examine the rest of the belief. Exactly. So it stemmed from that. And then I I went on to like all of the
1: other religious practices. And I was I mean none of it makes sense and or is natural. You just have to believe that this is the way to do things. And then I asked myself like do I really blindly believe everything that these rabbis are saying? And the answer was a very clear and loud no. I had never really taken the time to ask that question to myself. And it seems ridiculous to me now. I literally just assumed that everything they were telling me was the absolute truth.
0: Well, you'd never been exposed to any sort of Jewish practice before, and you were introduced to it in the sense of this is what Jewish people do. And you were connected to grandparents and it's like you discovered a component of your identity, I suppose.
1: Exactly. That's what it was at the time. Now looking back on it, I think I just grew past it. I think it was a necessary phase, but I just grew past it like any phase we go
0: through in life. Right. It's very interesting how we can accept things sort of completely and at face value, never really examine them until later. They're presented in a certain way. Not to say that every religious person hasn't examined their beliefs or anything like that, but it sounds like in your case, you said, This is what I should do. And then you did it. And then you decided, which is your right, to re examine that, which is also your right.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what it was. Just like it does seem crazy when you look back on it, how I just accepted this as the absolute truth. Absolutely did not question it. And every crazy thing that they were telling me that I had to do, I never questioned it.
0: Right. No, I I understand. I think sometimes when you accept the framework, then it's just a matter of details at that point. So once you realize that, how did it go for you?
1: So it was a kind of... Slow process to leave. I mean, I draw practicing everything, like absolutely all at once. I was like, none of this makes sense. I'm out of here. No. But I was still living in the religious community. I I was living on my own, but still in the religious neighborhood. And I didn't leave before my lease ended or anything. So It was this weird balance for a few months of like living happy, no longer religious Jewish life at home. But then the second that I step out, I was like too scared of running into somebody that I knew dressed the way I wanted to dress. So I was still dressing modestly outside and I was still going to people's houses for Shabbat dinner but obviously like, I was growing more and more uncomfortable with it because I had realized that this was no longer what I wanted to do with my life so I made plans to move further away from them as soon as I could and right. that was what I did and I never specifically told anyone I'm no longer religious this big dramatic thing right. I just let people figure it out if they saw it and noticed it and but it's just such a taboo topic and it's so awkward that like nobody asked anything the only person that i did tell hey i have to tell you i'm not religious anymore was so this is a very normal thing in the jewish world it's called a chavruta and it's known as a learning partner and most orthodox jews men or women have one it's a person that you choose a jewish book to study and you learn it together and so I had a Haruta a, a learning partner she was years older than I was she was married with something like seven kids so we would learn this, this book about Jewish law together I told her she was the only person that I did like non-religious coming out to and she was lovely about it they didn't ask any questions but again it's because you're it so awkward and weird that like they don't want to know why you're not interested in being religious anymore and they just hope that like you're going to come back and they don't even want to talk about it that's what I noticed everybody that I knew from back
0: then i actually think there is something where you're not supposed to bring up people's sins yeah and point them out i think maybe that's part of it i don't know if if it's a religious or a social taboo but there definitely does seem to be a taboo in that you told her and you moved further away and you just went on with your life yeah yeah exactly so where would you say you are now? How do you feel now I, that you have left? Mm-hmm. I wouldn't
1: really say I have any religious or spiritual practice. I just kind of go about my daily life and do my little things. I have a very quiet life in a small town. It's just me and my cat and my work, and I'm very happy have this peace, and I don't really stay in contact with the people who I knew that I was religious not because we had like a big falling out just because we no longer have this huge thing in common you know and they also don't want to have anything in common with me and this is a very funny thing I still have my learning partner and when people ask me how is that possible how does that work I have no idea it just works so we still sit down every week and learn this little Jewish book together with when we learn it like and she knows because she. She has seen me laugh. She pretends she doesn't, but she has seen me laugh. And like, she knows that I think that what we're reading is absolute nonsense, but I find it entertaining and I find it amusing. And she will, you know, she's a religious person who has to sit down and learn with somebody every week anyway. So we kept that up and we have a wonderful friendship and I really have no idea how it still works
0: but it does. So that's
1: the that only is, Jewish thing that's still going on in my life.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that is great that you managed to make a friend and she accepts you the way you are and you accept her the way she is and do this thing. And she knows that you're getting something different out of it than she is. So that's really nice to, to have that sort of mutual tolerance.
1: Yeah, that's what it is. Mutual tolerance. And I mean, <laughs> sometimes she'll say things that I find absolutely outrageous. And I'm sure that I say things that she finds absolutely outrageous, but it really doesn't change the the fact that we somehow have like a really solid base or a great friendship and a great connection. And so yeah, that was okay. like a big surprise to me that of all the people.
0: <laughs> She's like, okay, yeah. well, I have to learn with somebody. I might as well keep learning with you. So what if you're not religious? And you're like, well, okay. Okay. <laughs> That's great. Exactly. Obviously, we do have this
1: thing, and I understand why, but this is with all religious people. They never ask you about your life, what you're up to, what you're doing. Now she has started doing it. I left two years ago. Now she is finally starting to ask me about my life what I'm up to where I am what I'm doing how's work two whole years she finally feels comfortable enough to know that I'm not going to give her some
0: like outrageous answer and so she can ask me like basic <laughs> questions you're not going to up and tell her that you went through a drive through and got the pork sandwich and <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly yeah exactly
1: but we That's do have silly, like these but... very cute like mild disagreements every once in a while like Sometimes we talk, you know, about because she lives in a very insular community. She lives in a community that's much more religious than any community I was ever in. And she doesn't, like, ever have to interact with non-religious Jewish people. Like, not just non jews just any non-religious Jewish people. Like, they're not a part of her life. I'm the only non-religious person that she, like, interacts with at this point. And at some point, we're talking about the differences between religious world, secular world, what you can and can't do, treading very lightly. And I said something about out here in the free world, we can do... I don't know what and then she she just laughed and she kind of looked at me like, come on we keep this friendship going on not saying things like that so <laughs> it, it was funny yeah that is but fun. again she's not offended I'm sure she knows what I think of her life and I most certainly know what she thinks of my life
0: but right. somehow
1: friendships still work somehow
0: that's great it kind of gives you hope when you hear things like that yeah, yeah um, exactly okay well is there anything that you'd like to bring up or any anything you want to talk about before we wrap this up? I don't have anything in particular in mind. Well, it's definitely been a pleasure and I very much appreciate your time.
1: Well, thank you. I've never done a podcast before, so I was like, that should (laughs) be an interesting experience. And it was fun.
0: Thank you for joining us today. Please be sure to subscribe to get the latest episodes as they're released.